So this is 1 Kings 19, which is on page 555, if you have the Red Bible. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains, apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him.
Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here. My name is Jack, uh, if we haven't met. Uh, keep uh, your Bibles open. Uh, we're going to be heading through uh, 1 Kings 19. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. I've got the uh, Bible references on the screen, uh, but it is always better uh, to go off your own Bible uh, if you are able to. Well, I wonder if you struggle with busyness. Maybe I should rephrase. I know that many of us struggle with busyness. That feeling of constantly having too much on your plate, too many things to do, too much study, too many people to care for. We live in a world that doesn't know how to slow down. And I think that there are particular reasons for this. We're living through a technological revolution that we still haven't really come to grips with, which means that we are more connected than ever to each other, to our jobs, and to our study. Smartphones means that emails, text messages can come through at any time of the day or night. The news is accessible all of the time. And social media is literally designed to keep your attention. Every time you scroll through, you find something interesting, you get a tiny little dopamine hit that keeps you coming back for more. We live in a world that's moving too fast. How do you jump off the train? How do you get rid of that burden of not being able to stop? How do you get perspective in this world? And you know, for Christians, I think this question has a particular bite to it. Because we are particularly susceptible to busyness. There's already heaps to do in this world. Then we add on serving at church, serving at youth group, loving our neighbour, doing our devotions. All of these good things, but so many of them can just become exhausting. And I think actually that it exposes something in us. Kevin DeYoung, a, a Christian author, puts it somewhat confrontingly like this. Busyness does not mean that you are a faithful or a fruitful Christian. It only means you are busy, just like everyone else. You know, we can say that we have put our trust in Jesus, but often actually the actions and the busyness of our lives and the exhaustion that we feel can actually point in the other direction. We are still relying on ourselves to be the saviour, to save us and to save the world, and that is a massive problem. If you find that the Christian life is exhausting, well, that's a problem. If we look at the world around us and we think it would be so much easier to not be a Christian, well, that's a problem as well. In fact, that is a signal that we are missing something that is incredibly core to the gospel. Because what we're going to have a look at this morning is that when we understand properly what it is that Jesus has done for us, there is no greater hope or comfort in this world. There is no more freeing concept. There is no greater way of, to jump off that exhausting train of busyness than to rest in the arms of our Saviour who has done everything for us. So that's what we're going to have a look at. Let me pray and then we're going to jump into 1 Kings 19. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is written for us today. We thank you that even though we can look at this Old Testament passage, uh, it is meant for us 
And specifically, it is meant for us here at Barney's Croydon and all who've come this morning. Father, I pray for all of us, for all of us who need rest, who need to look to Jesus, who need to understand what it is you have done for us. Help us to hear it, help us to know it, help us to love it in our hearts, uh, that we can live lives that honour you because uh, of the confidence we have in your plan and what you have done for us in Jesus. So, Father, we pray all of this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, 1 Kings 19, as we continue along our Elijah series, uh, and this is a continuation of the story we saw last week in 1 Kings 18. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced post-camp blues before, or post-conference blues. It's that feeling of being part of something incredible, and then everything just comes crashing down. You hit the reality of life again. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening with Elijah at the start of this story. Last week, we saw how Elijah challenged the false prophets of Baal. He wins this decisive victory. The prophets of Baal are defeated. The drought is lifted. He's victorious, but not so fast. Let's pick up the story in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with you, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Ahab goes home and we find out something that we'd already begun to suspect. It's really Jezebel who wields the power and she is furious about what has happened in 1 Kings 18. And she is out for revenge. And she is still exerting a huge amount of power. And Elijah realises immediately the political implications of this. He's won the battle, but that war is still raging. And he is very vulnerable. And so, verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Just think for a moment about the emotional whiplash that he's just experienced. You see, God's people have finally turned. The leadership has reformed. Israel is going to be to the nation they were supposed to be. That's what he was thinking. And then suddenly, he's a fugitive, being hunted. But more than that, it's as though he's failed. As God's prophet, he is supposed to bring this message of repentance. He thinks that it has been accepted, but it hasn't been. It's when you think you know where God is going, and suddenly everything goes wrong. When you're certain you know where God's plan is, but then that door gets slammed in your face. And so Elijah flees. And we can see on this map here where he goes, he runs from Jezreel in the north of Israel all the way down to the south to Beersheba. And then at Beersheba, he leaves his servant behind and he enters a day's journey south into the wilderness. And the text tells us why he is doing this. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he went, himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I wonder if you can relate to Elijah at this point. The bitterness, 
the frustration, the anger, the sadness, the depression. And this is his prayer. How's this for a prayer? When I was at uni, we were all about demotivational posters. Here's a good prayer to frame and put on your desk if you're doing any study. He says, I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then what you do is you lie down under your desk and you fall asleep. But it raises an interesting question, doesn't it? Are we allowed to feel like this? And the question is made more acute by the fact that he is the great prophet. He is a person who has just performed one of the great iconic moments in Israelite history. But then next minute, he seems to be going through a full-blown existential crisis. Despairing of life itself, falling into a deep depression. But it's more than just him wilting. You see, Elijah has the weight of Israel's problems on his shoulders. He can see them sleepwalking into destruction. Elijah is an activist. He wants to solve the problem. He needs to make a difference, but his hopes have just been dashed. And his frustration towards the Israelites has turned into bitterness towards God and life itself. That's easy to happen, isn't it? But then something strange happens. Because God doesn't say to Elijah, go back. God says, keep going. Keep running. God doesn't rebuke Elijah. He meets him where he is. God has compassion on Elijah. He brings food and water so that Elijah has strength for the journey. And God takes him to the place that Elijah needs to be. Because from this point on, what happens is deliberate. Again, looking at narrative, we need to be paying attention to the detail because this detail is supposed to remind us of someone else. It's supposed to conjure up another scene. Have a look at verse 8. Let's walk through it. See if you can pick up what the author is trying to get us to see. Verse 8, God miraculously provides bread and water for Elijah while he travels through the wilderness. That's number one. Clue number two, there's 40 days and 40 nights that he travels for. Now, numbers are important. They're in there specifically. Has anyone else wandered in the wilderness for a period of 40 that this might be alluding to? By the way, it almost certainly doesn't take 40 days a night to travel from Beersheba to the location he ends up. Here's Google Maps, very helpful. Should have taken him 87 hours. So the author is trying to tell us something here. And the end destination is Mount Horeb. Now, you might not have heard of Mount Horeb, and that's because it has another name. The Bible consistently uses two different names for it. The other name is Mount Sinai. Now, these details are supposed to make us think of one person, and that person is Moses. This is the story of the Israelites wandering in the desert, miraculously provided for with manna from heaven and water flowing out of the rocks. Forty years they wander, and 40 days and 40 nights is how the Bible consistently points towards or points back to that event. And then Elijah ends up at Mount Sinai. 
the very place that God made a covenant with his people through Moses, where the Ten Commandments were given, where God gives his plan A to his people. God said, here is how I will redeem the world through Israel. Here is how the problem of sin will be dealt with. I will be your God and you will be my people. God brings the plan at Mount Sinai. But for those of you who know this story, you'll know that something else happens. When the Ten Commandments are given to Moses at the mountain, what are the Israelites doing? Well, they are at the foot of the mountain, busily melting down all their jewellery to make an idol to worship. And so Moses, he comes down, he throws the Ten Commandments, breaking them, and then has to go back up the mountain to plead for the people. And does God at that moment say to Moses, well, it's all broken now. Plan A is off. It's all wrecked. No. God tells Moses that the plan will still go ahead. And God guarantees it by showing his presence to Moses. We have this recorded in Exodus 33, 19 to 22. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. What's a cleft in the rock? Well, it's sort of like a cave. So God leads Elijah through the wilderness for 40 days, miraculously provides bread and water for him, takes him to Mount Sinai, and takes him, verse 9, there he went into a cave, a cleft in the rock, and spent the night. What's going on here? Well, I think that Elijah has been brought to the exact same place that Moses was, where God gives the plan A and guarantees it by allowing Moses to stand in his presence and glory. Now we've got that background, let's pick our story from 1 Kings 19 up again. Verse 9, And the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now clearly for the literalists out there, God is not asking, what are you doing in this precise physical location? No, this question is far deeper. Look at Elijah's response. God is getting to the root of Elijah's bitterness and frustration. Elijah gets to have it out with God. Feel the emotion in this response. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Elijah says, what are you doing, God? Your plan A is broken. This clearly isn't working. Everyone else is dead and I'm about to be. This is broken. You need to start again. And what is God's answer? The Lord said, go out 
and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And so the anticipation rises. Maybe Elijah is going to get his plan B. Maybe there's going to be a new plan, because this is what happened when the plan A was instituted. And then we get this incredibly vivid moment, the power of God on display. The wind begins to pick up. It gets stronger and stronger until it turns into a full-blown gale gusting against the mountains. But we are told the Lord was not in the wind. The earth begins to tremble. The ground shakes. The walls of the cave shudder as an earthquake hits the mountain. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Then there is a fire. The fire comes down from heaven. Fierce scorching heat that burns the skin reminds us of the fierce purifying fire that has just consumed the sacrifice in the chapter before. But the Lord was not in the fire. And then it says, and after the fire came, well, our translations say a gentle whisper or something like that. But actually the word there could also mean silence. And I reckon this is a rare occasion where there's a better translation. A thin slice silence is how one commentator puts it. Or as my old Bible college lecturer puts it, an awkward silence. Elijah is standing there saying that plan A is broken. He's waiting for plan B to see if there's going to be a new revelation, a new covenant. And the wind comes and the earthquake comes and the fire comes and our expectations are raised. What is going to happen? And then there is... Nothing. An awkward silence. There is no new plan. There is no new revelation. And Elijah kind of comes out of the cave and looks around. What is happening? And there is God. And now God speaks. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's the exact same question from before. And Elijah gives the exact same answer. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. But after the display of God's power, it doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? And this is the point. God's plans never fail. God is saying to Elijah, there is no plan B. Plan A is still plan A. Yahweh is still God. I am still fully in control of this situation. Because what might look like defeat to you, I will use for victory. And God says to Elijah, go back. Go back to the mess. Go back to the danger. And I love the ending. We get two things from the last few verses. Number one, God tells Elijah a whole bunch of things he's supposed to go and do, but actually Elijah doesn't actually end up doing half of them. But somebody else does who's mentioned. That person is Elisha. His name means my God saves. God's plans will actually continue beyond Elijah to Elisha. But two, we also get uh, this comment in verse 18. 
Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah has been saying that he is the only one, but God says, actually, mate, that's not true. (laughs) There are 7,000 of you who have not bowed bowed the knee to Baal. You see, what's happened in this story, I think, is incredibly beautiful. Don't miss God's compassion and grace towards Elijah here. Elijah has basically spat the dummy. He's exhausted. He's burnt out. Following God just does not seem to be working. But God, in his grace, picks him up, takes him to the same place that Moses once stood. God shows Elijah his power and reassures Elijah that God is still God. Plan A is still plan A. His plans and purposes will be accomplished and guarantees this by follow, allowing Elijah into the presence of God. That's an incredible story. And so the question that we ask now is how do we apply passages in the Old Testament? And have we, as we've been seeing, the wrong way to do it is to go straight from the Old Testament to us. The right way is to go Old Testament, Jesus us and when we do this something really incredible happens mark's gospel is one of the four biographies of jesus and it can be divided into two sections the first half is about who jesus is the second about his mission and the key turning point is when jesus for the first time describes in detail what this mission is peter has just declared that jesus is the messiah We have this sort of triumphant moment that leaves Peter looking pretty good. And Mark records it like this. This is what Jesus says. He, Jesus, sorry, this is what happens directly afterwards. Mark records it like this. He, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, then Jesus says this, and then what happens? If you know the story, Peter rebukes Jesus. Peter takes Jesus aside and says to him, this is crazy. This is a terrible plan. That cannot possibly be your plan for the Son of Man to die. You need to come up with a new plan, a plan B. And then two things happen. Number one, Jesus is not having any of it. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. A brutal line. And you think, wow, that was harsh. But what people often miss is what happens next. You see, Jesus doesn't leave Peter there. He meets Peter where he is. And the very next story is called the transfiguration. What happens? Well, Jesus takes Peter and two others up a high mountain. And Jesus is transfigured. It's the famous Raphael of this moment. That is, his divine presence shines through. And God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is a divine guarantee for Peter that plan A is still a go. This is the plan no matter what Peter thinks of it. There is no plan B. Jesus, the Son of Man, must die. And if you're not convinced that these two stories are linked, well, who appears on either side of Jesus? On the one side is Moses, 
And on the other side is Elijah. You see, the problem for Elijah and the problem for Peter is that they didn't believe that God's plan is working. They wanted a plan B, but instead God, in his kindness and compassion, shows them by his presence that he is still in control. His plans and his purposes will be achieved. Because what Elijah didn't know was that through Elijah and that faithful remnant, God was preserving for himself a people. And through that remnant, through the occasional ups, but mostly downs, of the next thousand years of history, through that line, a saviour would come. The true Israelite, the true king who would obey the word of the Lord and turn the hearts of the people back to God. And that person, as we saw last week, was Jesus. And what Peter didn't realise was that this Jesus was going to save his people, not by conquering or by political power, but by dying on a cross, by righteously fulfilling all the demands of the laws, by taking the punishment for our sins by dying on a cross, and in rising again, he would defeat sin, death, and the devil, and his kingdom established as he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That was the plan. The plan was accomplished. It is sufficient. It is finished. There is nothing more to be done. That's what we see when we apply it through to Jesus. Let's bring it through to us now. So how does this apply to us now? Well, our problem is not that we doubt God's plan will be accomplished. It's that we forget that it already has been. Our problem is not that we doubt God's plan will be accomplished, it's we forget that it already has been. Elijah and Peter can't see how God's plan will be carried out, but we have seen it. We know how this story ends. Our problem is that we just get caught up in the busyness of life and forget it. And I think a lot of our problems stem from this. Our big problem, it's not that we're busy, it's that we're busy for the wrong reasons. We've forgotten that there already is a plan A. It's Jesus. It's done. We think that we need to keep coming up with ways to save our world. And it's exhausting. Why are you so busy? Why do you need to commit to so many groups? Why is it important for you to be the one that everybody looks to for support? Why is it so hard for you to take a day off? Why do you get so stressed if you're away from your phone for too long? We look at the world. We feel overwhelmed. We feel the burden, and that's okay, but often that feeling is because we're not trusting God. Because only Jesus can we have rest. Only in Jesus can we let go. Can we know that there is nothing left to do? For the Christian, there is nothing on your to-do list. Your email inbox says zero. Your grade before God is full marks. You have a high distinction. There are no messages to send to friends who need you to be their saviour. Because the saviour has already come, that job is already taken, the plan is finished. Jesus has accomplished 
everything. And finally, this plan has been guaranteed by the Spirit in our hearts. This plan has been guaranteed by the Spirit in our hearts. If you're feeling a little confronted by that, remember the compassion and grace in this story. If you found that you've fallen into that trap, and I know I have even in this past week, remember when Elijah falls into a heap, it is God who comes to him. It is God who meets him where he is, gives him the strength to follow, takes him to the mountain where he can get the perspective that he needed in order to continue. The same with Peter and the same for us. They are taken into the presence of God where the plan is guaranteed, but we have something greater than that. No matter how many times we fall down, no matter how many times we forget this, we get it wrong, we get overwhelmed, we get exhausted, we have something greater than Elijah or Peter had at that moment. Because we don't just see the presence of God, we have the presence of God by his spirit dwelling in our hearts. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 1. Now it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. Get that? It is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. As Christians, we have the Spirit of God, this presence of God as our guarantee of God's plans and promises. It doesn't matter how many times we forget, we have the Spirit who prompts us again and again and again to look at Jesus, to look at the one whose death was sufficient, to look at the one whose plan was accomplished, the guarantee the Spirit is of all that Jesus has done. And nothing and no one can take that away from us. And so how are we to be different? Well, as Christians, we can rest knowing that God's plan has been accomplished. He saved the world. That means that we can stop. If you read the newspapers or spend any time on social media, the world is frantic because it doesn't have this guarantee. They're looking for a saviour desperately, thinking that they have to be the one. And so every issue becomes extreme. But as Christians... We can care for this world, and we'll talk a bit more about what that looks like next week. But we don't need to despair. We can rest. We can hand it over to God. There is a saviour. He has come. He has accomplished everything. Everything will be okay. That is the centre of what Christians believe. And understanding that is the heart of the Christian message. This is the good news. We can rest because the plan A has worked. Amen.